You are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. This is the word of the Lord. Hey there, everyone. Uh, my name is Jacob. If I haven't met you before, I'm on staff here at church, and I'm excited to be up here today. I've been looking forward to preaching on this passage uh, all week, um, since kind of opening up last Monday morning for the first time, reading those words you just read then, and, and thinking about what God might have to say to us. I've been excited, uh, reflecting on these words that, and this conversation that Jesus had 2,000 years ago. Um, I found really personally just encouraging and, and helpful this week. And so my hope is that right now as we gather and as we look at this and spend half an hour kind of unpacking it and thinking about it, uh, that you'll find it as encouraging and as helpful as I have. Um, and so I thought I just wanted to start by praying today because um, really for us to be able to actually understand him and hear what God is saying, he needs to be speaking to us, not just me saying a bunch of words up the front. So... I'd encourage you to pray with me now, um, just that God would be with us right now as we look at his word, and that he'd be speaking to all of us, so pray with me. Heavenly Father, we just uh, come before you as your people, uh, just so uh, so much in need of, uh, of words that are refreshing, uh, so much in need of words that will give us sight and clarity as to who we are, how this world is, uh, and how we might find a way forward uh, through what is often a confusing and difficult life that we live. And we, we know that you speak to us by your word, and so we just ask that right now, whatever we're thinking or feeling or wherever we're at in, in where our week has been like, wherever we're at in our journey with you, uh, for those here who are just starting to ask questions and, and hearing about you for the first time, for those who have been reading the Bible for, for decades, wherever we are, we ask that you speak to us now and that you might grow us and, and give us words of life. I praise in Jesus' name. Amen. I just want to start by telling you about one of my, I guess, most clear and most fond memories from my high school days. Uh, I remember it was my birthday. I, I don't know which birthday. I was probably 15 or, or 16. And I remember waking up in the morning, same time as normal, the alarm went off at school morning, got out of bed, uh, put my school uniform on, trudged down the road to my bus stop in Gladesville where I, wait, where I waited for the, you know, the 7 a.m. bus or whatever bus I normally get every single day to school. I remember getting on, finding my seat. But, but this day I felt excited and I felt happy, which isn't what I normally felt getting the 7 a.m. 45-minute bus before the Iron Cove Bridge was built into the city for school. And uh, I remember thinking, today's going to be different, today's going to be good. I remember the bus pulling up on Druitt Street in the CBD, uh, hopping off the bus, walking um, up George Street the way that I always would towards the school building, seeing the school there, walking past it, continuing to walk up to, to Town Hall Station where I went into one of the public bathrooms, took off my school uniform, put on my jeans and T-shirt or whatever else I brought, um, and then met a couple of other friends who were also not wearing the school uniform at, at that particular point in time. Uh, 
I remember going and getting a, a, a train down to Circular Quay, hopping off the train, hopping on a ferry, and going over to the zoo. And, um, and, and the reason I remember this day, look, I, I can't remember anything I saw at the zoo that day. Um, the, I'm sure the animals were great, as they always are, and the giraffes were funny and all that kind of thing. But the reason I remember this day is it was the first day I wagged school for a whole day. And, and I don't think there are any consequences for it, which is why it happened again. Um, but, <laughs> but, but on this day, I had this sense of just freedom that came with just being able to kind of set my own agenda, my own plan for the day, and having a few, a few friends along for the ride as well. Um, being at school, you often don't feel like there's a lot of freedom. You know, you've got your parents telling what to do, you've got teachers telling what to do, you've got your whole week kind of structured and planned out. And so to break free from that, it was um, it's just an amazing sense of freedom, and that's what I remember about that day. And there's a, there's a sense, isn't there, where, where freedom and the, and, and the desire to be free is just so inherent to our, into our personalities as humans. Um, we want to be free. We, we, we do not like being told what to do. We do not like having constrictions and restraints around us. We, we want to be free. And, and our desire for freedom and the sense that we have that it's just so essential to being human is what, what makes the opposite of this, this idea of slavery, so abhorrent to us. Uh, it's, it's why the, the slave trade that went on for hundreds of years and took thousands of people from their native homelands and, and took them across the other side of the world to, to, to work and be slaves for other people um, is just a blight on our existence as, as, as humans. It's why when you hear of the, the kind of work that Martin and them need to go and do over in, in Mumbai is... Is, is, it's just a shame that needs to happen that there are people who are even today in the 21st century having their freedoms uh, restricted in, in horrible ways. Uh, the idea of freedom is something we hold on to as people, it's something that we know that it just goes with what it means to be human. That we want to be free. And this passage that, uh, that Faf just read to us as we look in what Jesus is saying in his conversation with some religious leaders gets to the heart of what is real freedom. So I'm saying, what does freedom look like? What is the freedom that Jesus offers and Jesus promises? Uh, we're in a book of John, the book of John. Uh, it's a book about Jesus. It's written in order to give the readers of this book enough information to come to the conclusion that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God. And in, in coming to that conclusion, to then actually in that find what it means to have life and have it to the full. This half of the book that we've been in now, I think for seven or eight weeks, uh, has been taken up with Jesus performing just a range of signs or miracles. He's been doing these kind of amazing things that couldn't be done in any normal situation. And in doing so, has been revealing things about himself. Uh, and we've been over a bunch of things. So for example, last week, Jez took us to the end of chapter six, uh, in which Jesus uh, has this crowd of people uh, he's got a few loaves of bread, a couple of fish, and he, he multiplies this food out miraculously to feed thousands of people. And the reason that he does this isn't just to show that he's got power, which he does, but it's to show and to demonstrate that it is actually him who can provide the satisfaction for our greatest need, that he gives us what we need most. And so throughout the book of John, we've been seeing stories like this as Jesus just reveals things about himself. He does something and he speaks about it. But at the end of chapter 6, which is where we got to last week, it then goes into these two chapters, chapter 7 and chapter 8, which is basically this extended period of dialogue between Jesus and the Jewish rulers. So all of chapter 7, all of chapter 8, uh, is, this, um, is Jesus talking to the Jewish leaders. He goes to Jerusalem, which is the absolute center of the Jewish culture and the Jewish nation. And he goes to the temple, which is the center of the Jewish religion. And he begins teaching them. 
And what happens when he teaches is what's been happening through the whole book of John, which is that people are divided in how they're going to respond to him. Some believe what he says and actually start and want to follow him. And some reject him, even to the point of wanting to kill him. And what we see in this section, which is just one small part of this larger section, uh, is Jesus revealing something about himself. The verses that Baptist read to us, I think, are the kind of the, the, the center of this, this dialogue where, where Jesus confronts some, a core bit of the Jewish people's identity, which is what they believe about freedom. Jesus, in this passage, claims to be the one who provides real freedom. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. Uh, we're going to be going through this in kind of three points, and, uh, and I'll try to keep it as straightforward and simple as possible. It'll be on the screen, looking at what is true slavery, looking at how to get free, and then we're looking at what is true freedom. So firstly, true slavery. The first thing that Jesus claims in this passage is that his listeners appear to be free, but they're actually slaves. So we're going to get straight into it. In John chapter 8, verse 31, it'll come up on the screen. This is what happens. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? So as we, as we look at these verses, what we see is that Jesus begins with an offer. He offers a path to freedom, but obviously implicit in this offer is the assumption that his listeners need that, that they are not free, that they're slaves. Now, the Jews who are listening to Jesus, they, they understand what's beneath this offer of freedom, this assumption that they're slaves, and, and they're confused because they would not describe themselves as people needing freedom. Um, they believe they are free and they say so. But the way that they say that they're free, I think it's designed to make us stop and really question what they're saying. They respond by saying, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. Now, the first part of this statement reveals something about their core belief about their identity. Um, that they are, that as a nation, the Jewish people trying to build their identity in the fact that they are descendants of one person, this guy called Abraham. And if you don't know much about Abraham, that's okay. Abraham in the Old Testament, so early on in the Bible, was a, one guy that God came to with a bunch of promises. And God promised this man Abraham that through him, uh, there would be this great nation a lot of descendants and family that would inherit this great land in which God would bless them and, and just provide for them. And, and they take a lot of identity with the fact that they are the descendants of this promise, this promise of abundance and family and blessing. Um, and so, so the Jews say, don't insinuate that we're slaves. We're the descendants of Abraham, the great Abraham, the one that God has promised, God's chosen people. Don't suggest that we're slaves. But the second part of their sentence, I think, is where you cotton on to the fact that they're maybe a little bit deluded. Because they then say they've never been enslaved to anyone. And this would certainly make you pause if you were one of the original kind of readers of John's, of John's gospel. Because you would know that core to the identity of the Jewish people is this amazing story about being rescued from slavery. The history of the Jews was marked by their need to be set free from slavery. So many years before Jesus is around, 
The descendants of Abraham are enslaved in Egypt. They're kind of forced, you know, forced to build the pyramids, that kind of level of slavery. And they were stuck there for hundreds of years as a nation until God intervened and rescued them through this guy called Moses. Um, and this isn't a footnote in the history of, of God's people, the Jews, the Israelites and the Jews. It's, it's major. They're, they're to build their identity on the fact that they were slaves that were rescued by God. What's more, since then, they'd been uh, carried into exile by the Babylonian nation and kind of served them in Babylon uh, only 400 years before this. And at the time of speaking to Jesus, they're under the dominion of the Roman Empire, which is imposing all kinds of restrictions around who they are, and they're meant to be waiting God's chosen king who will set them free from this rule and reestablish these promises. And so when, when they say, we've never been enslaved by anyone, it's a statement of delusion. It's to make you stop and realize they, they're not seeing things clearly. Um, they're not aware of, of who they are, where they've come from, and what they need. So we're meant to stop and pause and wonder if they're missing something. Because what they do is they brush aside Jesus' offer of freedom. Which I think is what we do as a culture as well. When, when you think of 21st century Australian culture, it's right to say that we are privileged to a level of freedom that very few cultures throughout history have been able to enjoy. Whatever your gripes might be with Australian politics and, and how, you know, despite how they act, they just, a lot of our leaders look like Muppets, um, as, as a nation, we're actually free to elect people that we choose. And once they're elected, there are a huge number of restrictions about what they are allowed to do to us, ask of us, or impose on us. We have freedom of religion, that in Australia, multiple religions and, and belief systems and structures are allowed to exist and practice alongside each other without anyone interfering. The fact that we can meet here today like this. We're free to access education. There isn't forbidden bits of information that we're not allowed to go to as, as Australians. We're free to live where we, where we choose to live, uh, if we can afford it. We're free to work in whatever, uh, whatever field that we, we might want to pursue. We're free. Uh, and I think our freedom goes deeper than this, right? Um, a few weekends ago, our city celebrated Mardi Gras, which has gone a long way. In the late 70s, it was uh, a, a small protest of gay and lesbian people and their supporters that was actually met with resistance and police violence and arrests. To a few weekends ago, it's now hundreds of thousands of people from the LGBTQI communities, as well as people from other mainstream communities, celebrating the freedom to express yourself, to, to kind of choose what, how you might identify, uh, how you might live. This, this celebration of freedom as a culture. So there is this sense, and it's a true sense, that as a society, we are as free as we've ever been. So when Jesus says, hey guys, I can set you free, it falls on deaf ears for us as well. You think, we're not slaves, we're, we're free already. It's like when you get those phone calls, and it's like, hey, I'd like to you know, talk to you about giving you a new plan for your gas or your electricity. And you're like, I already have gas, I have electricity, like, go away. It's just this, this redundant offer that we just dismiss before we even hear it out. But the type of slavery that we think we are free from is not the type of slavery that Jesus speaks about. When we think of slavery, we think in terms of the forces that restrict us from the outside. These things external to us that limit us from out there. Oppression and rules and restrictions. 
And, and these things, yeah, we've, we've thrown out a lot of them as a, as a culture. But the slavery that Jesus speaks about is slavery from the inside. Now look at what he says. The next uh, part of this conversation will come up on the screen from verse 34, in which it says this, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. Jesus says there is a slavery that comes from within. And it's slavery to sin. Now, sin is not fashionable to talk about. It's got this outdated vibe about it. Um, it's not yet kind of cool enough to be vintage or whatever, right? Um, but the Bible's understanding of sin, I really believe, is essential to us understanding ourselves as people. When we think of sin, I think both people who are Christians and people who aren't, often the thing that comes to mind is, is our actions. It's the stuff on the outside of us. Things like I don't know, shoplifting from, from woolies or, or, or swearing or in, indulging in some kind of forbidden vice. These, these things that we do, we know we shouldn't do, but we kind of feel like, well, we're in control. We can kind of just do a little bit and you know, have it kind of under wraps. These things on the outside. But this is to, to grossly misunderstand sin. The Bible's view of sin is far more sinister than this. It's not this part of us we're in control of. It's a part of us that is in control of us. Sin is a twisting of human desire. It's this thing that's worked through every aspect of our being to hijack us from what it really means to be truly human. And it distorts us so far from what we are meant to be as humans. It's the part of us that stops us from seeing God. Not seeing him with our eyes, but, but seeing him in the sense that of just knowing for sure that he's there and he's there and he's working through everything and he's present. We don't see that because of our sin. It's the part of us that stops us from loving him perfectly and, and what's more, loving those around us. It's the part of us that makes us selfish and even selfish to the point of cruelty. It's the part of us that leads us to behavior that we even know is not for our good and yet we do it anyway. It's, it's fundamentally, what sin is, it's a core rejection and rebellion against God. And it stops us from having a relationship with the creator of the universe. And so we're, we're culpable for this. It's not just like a kind of sickness or a virus that you kind of catch and, and now you've got it and it's not really your fault. Um, it's a personal rejection of God, the God who made us and loves us. But the way that this rejection plays itself out does look more like a sickness or a virus in the way that it infects every single part of us. And, and the way that it can change our will and our desires to be so different to what human will and desire is meant to be. Uh, and that's why it's so scary, because that can happen without you even realizing it. It can, it can change you and make you so different to what you ought to be without you even knowing it that we might still think we are free despite being slaves. Uh, one thing I really love is David Attenborough documentaries. I love, I love just seeing interesting things from nature. Like I've got all these cactuses at home and just them flowering gets me excited for a week. But I, when you watch documentaries, you can see things you wouldn't normally see or be aware of because they're just kind of small and weirder and weird rainforests that you've never heard of. And um, one of the most intense things I've ever seen in a David Attenborough documentary is, is something called the cordyceps fungi. 
Um, has anyone heard of the cordyceps fungi? Yeah, there we go. Uh, basically, basically, there's this fungi, right? And, and, and the way that it works is that it infects one particular type of ant. It's just kind of designed for, for this one ant. And uh, an ant normally is pretty predictable. It'll kind of follow the colony. They all go out marching in a line. They get some dead grasshopper. They drag it back. They cut it up. They give it to the eggs, feed the queen, uh, a day in the life of an ant. And, and it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty simple. But when an ant is infected by the cordyceps fungi, its instinct is overridden. It still looks like an ant. Still, you look at it and like, yeah, that's an ant. But it's not behaving like an ant. What, what it does when it's got this fungi, which isn't even, I don't even know what a fungi is, it's something like a spore or something. You know, it's in it. And, it. and what the ant does is it leaves the colony, climbs its way up this kind of twig or a, a leaf to some high point where it wouldn't normally go, latches onto it with its mouth and then dies just so the fungi can then sprout out of its head like a mushroom and then first... I've got like a picture. This, this, that's the fungi. It's come out of the ant's head. Anyway, it's kind of gross and, and scary and terrifying all at the same time. It's like real-life alien. But, but the thing is when this happens, right, and you're watching this, it's, it is bizarre that this just a, a, a bit of fungi can make an ant so unlike an ant. And, and the ant, is, like, it's, it's more terrifying than, like, you know, ants get killed all the time, like a bird or a spider or something. But this, it makes the ant basically go and kill itself. It, it serves the will of the fungi, not its own will or the will of the colony. And I just think this, this is a picture of how sin enslaves us. When through our rejection of God we invite sin in, it takes control and enslaves us by making us do things we wouldn't normally do. Uh, from things that will give us life, that we should be pursuing as humans, to ultimately taking ourselves to our own death. It's the case, right? If you want to get someone to do what you want them to do, you can kind of point a gun at them and tell them what to do. But, but far more effective and long-term than that is to, is to make someone want to do what you want them to. And that's what sin does to us. It changes our will and our desires. And this is why so many people can be slaves to sin and not realize it. Because we think we want it. But deep down... We don't. And so maybe that's you. Maybe you're here today and you wouldn't say you've got a problem with sin. That's not how you describe yourself. You're like, I look at myself, I can't see that happening. But even though you can't see sin, I think you can see its effects pretty clearly. It's in the same way you can't see the wind. If you look outside and at trees moving back and forth, you don't think, oh, well, that's a really interesting tree that's moving so much. You think, oh, there's wind. It's, you can't see it, but it's there. And it's the same with sin. You can't see it all the time, but when you stop and reflect and look wider, it's, it's pretty obvious. You see it in the way that our world can't stop having huge-scale wars, mass shootings, inequality, corruption, racism, and greed on a, on a global scale. Like, why do all things, all these things exist? Like, we just take it for granted that that's, yeah, that's what that's what a society would do: just kill each other and do all these crazy things. But I, I don't see any better explanation for the world being this messed up than what Jesus has to say about sin. He's got the best theory on it as far as I can find. Why, why else would this be happening to our world constantly and permanently? You can see it on a small level as well if you look into yourself. The fact that there is not one of you who would be okay with me having transcribed every thought and action that you did this week and then putting it up on the screen for everyone here to see. Uh, we do things we're ashamed of, we know that are wrong and we can't stop. It's this thing inside it that we cannot stop happening. 
We're slaves to sin. And so what we need to do is not be like the Jews who say, we're free already. We need to acknowledge that we've got a problem. We've got a, a, a massive issue in this issue of sin and with the fact that we're slaves to sin. And this takes me to our next point, which is how do we get free? If that's the problem, if that's the condition we're in, where does freedom come? And the thing is, it's not easy. Um, it's not good news that the problem isn't external. If the problem was out there, we could fix it. Um, I was listening to this, this week to this podcast uh, by Sam Harris, who's an author and a very public atheist. And um, he's really interesting and a great mind and says so many helpful and thoughtful things. Um, but it, he says some stuff that I really disagree with as well. And in this podcast I was listening to this week, he was having this conversation with Russell Brand. And they were talking about how do you, how do you make society better? How do you make people be good? Um, Unusual for, I guess, one of the new atheists, Sam Harris believes that there is such a thing as good and that there is a right way for people to live, and he acknowledges that people often don't live this way. But he also believes that deep down people are good, and the only thing stopping us all being good is the fact that we've got these kind of bad systems around us, that politically, society, education, whatever it is, we're not set up right, that if you set things up just right, people would all be good to each other. Um, I find this really irrational for an otherwise rational guy. Uh, I just, it's kind of just obvious when you look around to say, that's a great theory, but it's never worked. There's been so many different ways of structuring and building a society around so many belief systems. Christian societies, Muslim ones, Hindu, Buddhist, um, just kind of vaguely secular like we're in now, or, or militantly atheist, um, like it's happening in communist countries. There have been theories of of economics and, and education and, and, and justice and welfare that have been practiced and tried and tweaked and, and done everywhere. And the only thing every society has in common is that people are still evil, that people still do wrong to each other. No matter what you situate, you can change your external stuff. You can overthrow a Stalin, you can overthrow a Hitler and, and end his life and end his regime. You can get rid of a pharaoh. The only rule of slavery that humanity can't break is this rule of sin because it's internal. Sin is our biggest problem. Everything else is secondary. So now I want to go back to what Jesus first said because this, in light of this, his offer is staggering. He says this, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Jesus offers freedom from this sin we've been talking about. And he says that the way to get this freedom is through knowing a truth. Uh, in other times, talk about believing a truth or, or having your faith or your trust in, the, in, a, in a truth. And so what is this truth? What is the truth that has power to set us free from this kind of sin? Uh, I, I want us to get it, so I wanted to do it simple. And I think Jesus, in his own words, a few chapters back in John, says the truth that he's referring to here, probably the clearest he ever states it. And it'll come up on the screen. Uh, it says this, and if you've read this before, I want you to just... Read it anew, read it afresh, because these are not light, flippant, bumper sticker words. He says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This truth, in those words, has the power to liberate us from the sin that controls us. First thing to note is, it's God that frees us. We do not free ourselves. 
God looked at us in our sin and, and saw that how horrible it was and, and the reality that he cannot coexist with our sin. We, that he hates it. He hates our rebellion. He hates how wrong and, and off we are. And yet he has compassion enough to decide to provide a solution. Uh, and, and, he, and, it, and it takes a radical solution because, again, our slavery is part of us. It's deep inside of us. And so what God does is he sends Jesus, the only person, his son, himself in the flesh, the only person who was ever not a slave to sin, who didn't reject God and therefore have all these negative effects of sin come into the picture. He sent him into the world to die in the place of people like us. And when he was nailed into a cross and died, it, it is as if all of this, this evil and this sin and this control of us was put on him and there it died with him. And, and the mysterious reality that Christianity presents is this, and I can't even explain it, but that when you put your faith in Jesus, when you say to him, Jesus, I need you, I need you to set me free, I need you to forgive me for my sin, then our slavery to sin ends, Jesus takes it with us and takes it to death. And it sounds crazy that Jesus' death 2,000 years ago can free us from this destructive, soul-consuming part of us called sin. But that's the truth that Jesus puts forward. And, and I think it's a freeing truth, and, and I actually also think it's the only real option we've got. It's the only antidote, the only solution to sin that we might ever have some kind of confidence to face death with certainty, or to even make any kind of gains in this life as individuals and societies to embrace this truth. So there is nothing else we can do with our sin. We can't break the control it has over us. It can't be beat. We need Jesus to free us. And as I was writing this, I'm just wondering, is there, is there anyone here today who's come along and maybe you are feeling the weight of your sin and you've been just trying and trying and trying to control it, to fix it, to get rid of it, to, to be okay, to be well, to be whole, and it's just exhausting you. And the answer to it, Jesus says, is believe this, that God loved you so much that he sent Jesus into the world to forgive you. That this is the truth that means you can stop trying and fighting and doing it all in your own strength, that, that you're forgiven and loved. That maybe up until this point today, that God has felt distant and unattainable and, and, and your life is just out of control. But in this answer, Jesus says, no, I love you. You can be free. I can forgive you. And, and I would say, if that's you, do it today. We want this to be a place where you can, we can come here and not be embarrassed or ashamed that you haven't figured it out until now, but say, I, I've never done this. I've never gone to Jesus and asked for forgiveness. And it's, it's a serious thing to be doing. Because the alternative is to perish. But it says, unless you believe in Jesus, you'll perish. Jesus says earlier in this chapter, we didn't get it read, it was just before we started reading, but um, he says in, in chapter 8, verse 24, he goes, I told you you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am him, you will die in your sins. And these words, even though it's not in the bit I was speaking on, when I got this passage, I couldn't not say these today. Because it's some of the most terrible words that Jesus ever speaks. The reality that every day people slip out of this world without having this issue of sin addressed in their life is a tragedy, because the answer is there, and the answer is in Jesus. So consider doing this today. Now, as you're considering this, I want to do my last point now, which is what does true freedom look like? That you might know what it is you'd be embracing if you embrace this freedom that Jesus offers, which many of us already have. What Jesus says is this, so if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. 
We've explored what slavery to sin looks like. We've explored the means by which God might free us. So the question is, what does this freedom look like? What is it freedom to do? Uh, which is, I think, a good question because when a lot of people think of Christianity and freedom, they don't fit together. I want to highlight quickly three aspects of the freedom that Jesus offers. Firstly, it's freedom from guilt. The moment we accept Jesus' freedom, all of the guilt that we carry from living a life of living under sin's rule is gone. So God looks at us, despite what we've done and everything that we're carrying along with us, he then says, from now on, I'm just going to view you as sons and daughters. Which means there is no place for guilt for those who have been set free from sin. Uh, Paul says in Romans, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he means it. That if you're someone who's been set free, you know this, you've gone to Jesus, you've, that John 3.16 applies to you, you can be free from the guilt. This sense that you, you've not done well enough, that you haven't performed enough for God, you've, you keep falling short. Even, even if this week you've been coming from a week where you've been set free from sin, but you keep kind of treating it like it's your master and, and you know that, there's no condemnation. With sin removed, there is no guilt. You're forgiven. You're free. And if you need to hear that afresh, just hear it and be okay with hearing that. You are forgiven. You are loved. You are free. We need to keep remembering this. If you believe the truth about Jesus, you have nothing to be guilty for. Jesus is taking it to the cross. Secondly, freedom uh, means freedom from the power of sin, not just from the guilt of sin. While as Christians, we will still be tempted to sin again, and we will sin again, the difference is that sin is not our master. Romans 8.13 says, If you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Once you've been set free from sin, you can do something you couldn't do before, which is fight back and kill it. That's what we're called to do. The long word for this is sanctification. It's this process of over years becoming less like what we were when we were slaves to sin and more like Jesus. And it's a process. And it's not one that's ever fully met in this life. But it means that we can fight back to sin. And, and to fight, not as people who know that inevitably we're going to lose, but as people who know that inevitably we're going to win. And so Christians, you know your sin is there. You don't have to live according to it. But are you complacent to it? Do you kind of just take this freedom to mean, oh, now nothing? Or do you take to mean, we've got the upper hand, I'm going to fight. I'm going to fight like crazy. Do you fight sin in your thoughts? Do you fight it as you set your routines for the week? Do you fight it in the way that you fight to read the Word every morning? Do you fight it in the way that you maintain your commitment to Christian community and helping others fight it as well? The call to you if you're a Christian is to fight like a free person. Sin has no claim on you anymore. The third aspect of freedom that I want to talk about is the freedom to serve Christ. The sort of freedom that we find in Christianity um, is not how we tend to think about freedom. Um, we, we often think of freedom in what philosophers call negative freedom, which is freedom from constraints. This idea of I can do whatever I want, however I want, whenever I want. This, nothing is going to impose on me. But the type of freedom Christianity offers is what philosophers call positive freedom, which would be defined as the freedom to pursue some good positive end. Um, a biblical scholar called Don Carson describes Christian freedom like this. It will be up on the screen. He says, "Our freedom is not. Is it, did I put it in? Uh, our freedom is not freedom to do as we want, 
but the freedom from being controlled by our fallen hearts to do as God wants. True freedom is not the liberty to do anything we please, but the liberty to do what we ought. And it is genuine liberty because doing what God wants pleases us. Christian freedom doesn't mean waking up in the morning and saying, oh, what will I do with my life? Christian freedom is waking up in the morning and saying, how am I going to spend my life living the way that God created me to live? And this is why there are some aspects of Christianity that might look restrictive. But the idea of anything good coming from lack of restriction, completely and utterly, is just it's madness. All of the greatest pursuits have limitations. If you want to be free to pursue being a great athlete, you can't at the same time be free to sit on the couch all day eating cheeses. Um, that sort of freedom to pursue that end comes with a cost. Um, another one that's just in my head, I got married recently, and, and people make jokes about the restrictions of that. Like I'll say, oh, I've got to ask Sarah before I do something, and then they'll be like, oh, I'll get used to it, the old ball and chain, that kind of thing. And in our culture, marriage is viewed as a restriction. And of course, it, it brings with it restrictions. I'm now not free to pursue any relationship with anyone I want. I'm not free just to plan every day of this week the way that I want to just inform Sarah of it or to uh, plan what I'm going to do next year and announce that we've kind of moved, I'm moving over there. I just know how it works. There's restrictions. But those restrictions are a necessary part of having a certain freedom, which is the freedom to love Sarah as marriage has, which is to have a relationship of security, to have a relationship of permanence. Um, the freedom to pursue love fully brings other restrictions. And this is the, the case with counseling. You're going to be a great musician that's going to restrict your time in other ways. You know, anything, right? And so, of course, it's true with serving God. The freedom that comes with serving God will mean that sometimes it will even look like you're a slave. I'm going to just read one more passage today. Uh, Romans 8 from verse 20, it says this. Uh, when you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things resulted in death. But now you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, he uses the same language, slave to sin, slave to righteousness, slave to sin, slave to God. But the process of, of being set free from sin and becoming a slave to God is not swapping one life-sapping restriction for another. It's swapping the service of a life-taking master that will eventually leave you dead to a life-giving master that will give you life and life to the full. So again, Christians here, are you using the freedom that you've been given to serve God? Now that you aren't under sin's rule, do you use your freedom to pursue your ultimate purpose, which is showing God to the world, bringing about his purpose on earth and into eternity? Is your hope, oh, I'm free, I can pursue long weekends, get a nice car, get a nice house, go on a great holiday. Is that the extent of your freedom? Or, or is your freedom to say, how am I going to serve God? How am I going to make God my master? Does that mean moving to Mumbai and, and doing this difficult work which is going to be absolutely heart-wrenching and heartbreaking? Then so be it. Are you serving him? We're going to have time to reflect in a minute. But I just want to say, reflect on where you're at. For those of you who, who haven't come to Jesus for freedom, would you consider doing it today? Are you ready to have the power of guilt, the, the guilt of sin removed? 
the power of sin to control you so you can fight back? Are you ready to actually embrace and serve the one who gives you life? If you are, write it on those white cards um, and we'll follow you up. Or even better, come talk to me. I'll have to be hanging around somewhere in this building after church. Just come and, come and talk to me. I'd love to do that with you. If you've been set free before, are you, are you loving that freedom? Are you grateful for it? Is it playing itself out in the way that you reject those feelings of guilt, in the way that you uh, just daily just embrace anew the fight against sin and as you look for opportunities to serve God? I'm going to pray now. After I pray, uh, we're going to have a, a, this, this break. Faf will come and tell us what we're doing next, but not, then we're going to sing. So pray with me. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you for the freedom that is in Christ. We want to thank you that we didn't deserve anything and we were slaves and yet you redeemed us. You came into this world to give us life and to give us freedom. There is now no guilt for those who have accepted that. There is now this this kind of cheerfulness of going into a fight that we know we're going to win when we fight against our sin. And as we now have a, a structure around our life as to how we should live, which is in service of you. Lord, we just want to thank you for this. And I just pray for each of us in this room, wherever we are, that we would know that freedom and embrace it fully. That when we're finding it hard to do that, when we're finding it hard to get rid of the guilt, when we're finding it hard to get in the upper hand of our sin, that you will strengthen us and you will help us and encourage us when we need it. And we pray as a church, we'll just not forget what you've done for us in the cross. You took away our sin and you nailed it to that piece of wood that we might stand forgiven before you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Like I said, take a minute to reflect, and then, um, yeah, soon, a couple of us will be on.